Good morning. It's good to be here and appreciate everyone in attendance. I'd like to welcome you with the, uh, with the others to the services today. We appreciate you making uh, a part in this, uh, this audience. We've got a good crowd today. Also want to say thank you to some co-workers of mine, uh, Gloria and her mom, Trina. Appreciate y'all being here today with your daughter, Juliet. For a little while, let's take a look at the book of Esther. I hope you've enjoyed the, the sermons over the women of the Bible as much as I have. So we're going to take a look at Esther for a little bit. And today we're going to see God's hand throughout this whole entire story. You'll see how God uses ordinary people like you and I to do extraordinary things. You'll see God's providence throughout this book. The story of Esther is filled with love, along with deception, murder, lust, rage, and most of all, courage. Kind of sounds like a Shakespeare story, doesn't it? Maybe like Macbeth or Hamlet or Othello. Interesting enough, back in 2007, Becky and I had the privilege to travel over to Italy. While we were in Verona, which is the mainland from, um, well, when we were over there in Verona, we got to see the actual balcony that inspired Shakespeare to write the tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. So today the sermon is titled, A Queen Saves Her People. We find the book of Esther among the 12 historical books of the Bible, like 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. The book of Esther happens to be the last of those historical books. The key verses in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, it says, But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? So her cousin is saying, Who knows? Maybe this is the reason you become queen at this time. You can't stay silent. Have you ever felt that way that you just can't stay silent? So the question is, why did God put Esther here at this particular time? And you and I, we've wondered the same thing from time to time. Maybe that's why I was put here. Maybe that's why this person was put in my life at this particular time. You see, we can see God's word throughout this story. There are only two books in the Bible that's named after a woman. First is Ruth, and of course the second is the book of Esther. The author is unknown, but some believe that it's either Ezra or Mordecai might have penned it. This book has been described as an island because it's unique. It doesn't mention God at all. It doesn't mention the law of Moses at all. None of the other books in the Bible quotes the book of Esther. So it's an idol. While God's not specifically mentioned, when you read it, you can see God's wisdom at work so that his people and the bloodline of Christ 
would be preserved. The book of Esther, it mainly deals with the history of the Jews that did not return back and they decided to stay in Persia. There's a twofold purpose of this book. First, it tells us what happened to these Jews that stayed in Persia. And secondly, it gives us the history behind the Feast of Purim, which is observed by Jews today. Let's take a look at history for a moment. Let's find out where this story actually takes place. I'm going to take you all the way back to the days of Moses. We know that God sends Moses back to Egypt to demand the release of the Israelites from slavery. We know that God leads Moses leads God's people through the Red Sea, and we know that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. After many years go by, Moses passes the reins off to Joshua. So let's look at this timeline for a moment. You'll see the time of the cross, and we normally refer to that as 33 A.D. So we got to back up before the cross. I took you all the way back to Moses, approximately 1571 B.C. And then a few years later, when he turns things over to Joshua, 1406 B.C. So... As we go travel to the right, those numbers will get smaller and smaller as we get closer to, theoretically, the year of Christ's birth, which is zero. And then, from there, the numbers go up as time goes on all the way to 2021 today. All right? So Joshua... He leads God's people to the land of Canaan, the promised land, a land so rich and fertile that it's called the land flowing with milk and honey. After Joshua wins the battle at Jericho, God's people, they lived there under a system of judges for about 450 years. Things went pretty good for a while, but after some time, they got tired of the judge system, and they started looking around at other nations, and they, they see the Moabites over there. They have a king. The Edomites, they have a king. The Amalekites, they have a king. Well, since the grass is always greener on the other side, they wanted a king too. God told the prophet Samuel, okay, okay, tell them I'll give them a king. They're not going to like it. But I'll give them a king, Samuel says. They're rejecting me. God said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. I am their king. They're rejecting me. But if they want a king, I'll give them a king. So God picked out a great and humble man to be their king. Well, at least he started out humble, and that is Saul. We know that eventually things went to Saul's head and he was replaced. In fact, God told King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. But Saul refused to obey God. He was replaced by a shepherd boy named David. And King David is called a man after God's own heart. Well, after David, Solomon came to be king. And then there was civil war. The kingdom was divided. 
after Solomon, his son Rehoboam was king over the south. And then Jeroboam became king over the north. God had warned them about having a king, but they wouldn't listen. And it was during this time that God's people, they turned away from God. Other nations would savagely attack them, capture them, and take them away. In fact, Assyria, they captured the southern kingdom of Judah. Then they fell prey to the Babylonians. And our story picks up just after the Babylonian captivity. And that's in 597 B.C. One of the things that happened is the Babylonians, they would take groups of Israelites, especially the smartest and the wisest, and they would transplant them to other areas, moving them far away from Israel, from Jerusalem, from Judah. They'd move them far away. You remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? That takes place at this time. He's one of them that was captured by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he's moved away from Israel. Well, when their captivity is concluded, they are allowed, the Jews are, they're allowed to go back home and return to Israel, I mean to Israel and to Jerusalem. But a lot of the Jews decided not to leave. They decided to stay. They had families, they had maybe a new home, and they decided to remain in Persia. So the events in Esther happens right here, 483 B.C. In fact, the book, the, the whole book uh, contains a period of time of only about 20 years. It happens after the Babylonian exile. Seventy years, the Jews in the Persian kingdom, they're allowed to go back home. So that's where we're going to start the story. Well... Let's talk about the main characters first. There's five main characters. King Ezra is going to be the first character. Most historians agree that this is referring to King Jerksey the first, who reigned 485 to 464 B.C. So King Ezra, he was a very weak man, a very weak individual. But he ruled over a huge kingdom, enormous amount of land. In fact, it was 127 provinces, including Israel. So it was huge that he had control over. The problem with this king is that he's, he had no morals. He was morally bankrupt. Oh, and something else, if you could whisper and talk to him in his ear, you could convince him to change his mind. So he kept changing his mind over and over and over again. Next is his beautiful wife, Queen Vasti. So in the story, she stands up for herself and she tells the king no. Well, back then, you don't tell the king no. She said no. And he decided to divorce her. And he got rid of her from being king. So what happened is at the end of a seven-day feast, he wanted his wife, because she's so pretty, to stand up and entertain all of his guests with her beauty. And she said, I'm not going to do it. Her actions that day are still commendable today. Although it cost her the crown, she did stand up and do the right thing. And you and I, we should admire and we can respect Vasti's decision because she was not willing to show herself as an object of lust to a group of drunken men. 
even if it meant she was going to lose her crown. You know, there's a lot of women today that could learn a lesson from her. They need to learn this great lesson about modesty because many take no, no thought, no account in how they dress or what they expose. Some even dress themselves as skimpy as they can so they can get attention. Or they use their bodies as a way of advancing themselves in the workplace. No one named a Christian should ever do this. Because Paul teaches us that women and men should dress in a way that will profess godliness. Working in the schools, working in education, the dress code is one of my biggest headaches. Because people won't abide by it. I'll give you an example. We are at the very last week of school. The last two days of school. And one young lady, sixth grader, she shows the school with pink shorty shorts. Little bitty shorts. And that's, that's what she decided to come to school in. So she's dress coded. She's sent to my office. I have to have an awkward conversation with her. And she ends up putting on some of the longer athletic shorts and I'm able to let her go back to class. Third period, guys, those athletic shorts were gone and she had the pink shorts again. People don't want to be told no. They don't want to follow and be modest. 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 and 10, Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So this morning, never forget the lesson of dressing modestly, okay? The next character that we'll discuss is Haman, the king's evil advisor. He was second in command. He was the prime minister of the king, and he was rotten to the core all the way through and through. A very prideful man, and all he thought about was himself and his reputation. He was an Amalekite, and he was a direct descendant of King Agag, who King Saul was supposed to utterly destroy, but didn't do that. That's who Haman is. And we can see how prideful he was because he gets very, very mad at Mordecai for not bowing down to him. And that's why he decides to kill Mordecai. And he finds out Mordecai is a Jew, so now he's going to kill all the Jews. We'll get to that in just a moment. The first hero of the story is Mordecai. He was probably born while in Babylonian captivity. Mordecai did his best to raise Esther and give her guidance. And when she was chosen to be one of the women the king would choose as a new queen, he advised her not to tell anyone that she was a Jew because he knew the danger. While he was at the king's gate to find out if Esther is going to be chosen as queen or not, he overhears the plan of two eunuchs, and they're going to go kill the king. And he finds out the plan. So he's able to reveal this plan and save the king. And later on, his name is going to be written in the royal chronicles for this good deed and even honored by the king. And then the last character 
is Esther herself. We know her by her Persian name. It means star, and that symbol fits perfectly with what Esther did for her people. She was a beautiful Hebrew woman, and as I said earlier, she was raised by her older cousin Mordecai. Out of all the young virgins in Persia, Esther won the heart of the king and became the new queen. All right, so let's start the story, okay? And it starts back with King Cyrus, the Persian king. He conquered Babylon and made a law allowing the Jews to go back to their homeland, the land of Judea, the city of Jerusalem. But again, many of the Jews decided to stay. Some returned and some stayed. One of the, the men from the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai decided to stay. He lived with his young cousin Esther. Her parents had already passed away and they lived in the new capital city of Persia, Sushan. So by this time, King Darius, who had put Daniel in the lion's den, had died. And in his place, his son, King Ezra, became king. So he's now the ruling king, Ezra. And he throws a big party for all the important men of the day. Esther chapter 1, verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and servants, the, all the power of Persia and Media, to the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. So this feast, it lasted a long time, 180 days. He is really putting on a, a big show for him. It ends with a seven-day drinking party. And you know what happens when you get a group of men together and they start drinking for seven days. Disaster, right? And disaster does happen. It concludes with him deciding to show off how beautiful his wife is. He's got the most beautiful women in his kingdom, and he says, I'm going to prove it to you. Come here, wife. Come here, wife. She finds out what he wants her to do, and she says, no, I'm not going to do it. She refused. Now, back in the day, you do not refuse the king's request. And you do not refuse your husband's request. And here, Vasti refused both. So he's... His blood's boiling. He's mad. Verse 12. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. She made him a laughing stock amongst his peers, amongst all the people that he's, he's trying to entertain. So he decides she's no longer going to be queen. And his advisors, they're in his ear. They're saying, hey, she's disrespecting you. Hey, she's disrespecting us. Hey, we can't let our women see her stand up to the... If she does that, they're go she's going to empower our wives. Something's got to be done, king. So he divorces her. She's no longer his queen. You have to just understand power that the king had back then. You didn't tell the king no for anything. He then created a contest to select the most beautiful girl, the most beautiful virgin in the area. Amongst the girls brought to the palace was the little Jewish Esther. Her heart was as pure and lovely as her face. 
And when the king saw her, he loved her. She was the one he chose to be his next bride. Verse 17. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now Mordecai could no longer visit with her because she had gone to the palace to live. She was the queen. So instead he would send her messages. And she would reply and send him messages. Kind of like in grade school was passing notes back and forth. That's what they did. They would send message, messages to one another through servants and through messengers. Esther had come to mean as much to Mordecai as a daughter. And he missed her very much. Esther chapter 2 verse 21 to 23. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bitham and Tiresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hands on the king Azra. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles, before the king. I didn't do that very well, guys. Sorry. So what happens here? One day Mordecai overheard two of the men plotting to kill the king, and he reports it to Esther. And when she told the king, he immediately took the men and punished them. He hung them. Right? I'd say that's punishment. And then he writes Mordecai's brave deeds in the book of records. Now we get to the greatest man in the kingdom next to the king, and that's Haman, chief of all the princes. And he thought he was so important. He loved to see people bow down to him. And so as he would go out the king's gate, there's one man that wouldn't bow. And that was Mordecai. Mordecai worshipped only God, and he wasn't going to bow down to a man. Esther chapter 3 Verse 5 and 6. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had shown him in the people, shown him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Azra, even the people of Mordecai. So because he wouldn't bow down, that made Haman very angry. And when he found out who Mordecai was and that he was a Jew, he determined to do away with all the Jews. So he comes up with a story. He goes to the king. And he says, hey, king, we're going to have to kill the Jews. The king says, okay, well, we're going to kill them. He said, because the, kings, because the Jews are not obeying your laws. He said, okay, make it happen. You see, the king really didn't know anything about the Jews or who they were. And he never dreamed that his own queen was, in fact, a Jew. The day was set for the killing of the Jews, and the law was written commanding their death, and copies were sent out throughout the kingdom. And when Mordecai and the other Jews, they heard about it, they tore their clothes, and they started walking around speaking loudly against the new law. And Esther had been sent a message, something's wrong with your cousin, he's acting like a crazy person. So she sends a message to Mordecai, what's going on? And Mordecai sends a message back to her, we're about to be killed, we're about to be destroyed, you've got to do something. He asked her that she go to the king to have the king save her people. 
And that created a huge problem for her. The law of the king had always been if you approach the king without invitation, then you're going to be killed. And no one could approach him, not even the queen. So if you approach the king unannounced, he would have to extend his scepter. And if he didn't extend that scepter, then he was displeased and then you were killed. You know, I thank God that you and I don't have a king like that today. Our Heavenly Father, he lets us come to him, talk to him. The Bible says we can approach the Father with confidence. And you know, it breaks my heart when I talk to people and they're afraid to talk to God. We can have confidence. We can come before him. If you're afraid of going to Jesus, and to, I, I encourage you to get to know Jesus better. Open his word, study, make church attendance a priority. Jesus is merciful to forgive. He shed his blood for you. He'll wash away your sins. But you've got to get to know him. Put your faith in Christ Jesus, not in your feelings. You know, feelings, we all have them. Feelings in themselves, that's not bad. It's okay to have feelings. But don't let your life be ruled by the way you feel. Put your faith in your Savior, in Jesus the Christ. All right, going back to the story. When Esther heard all this terrible news, she was greatly distressed also. So she sent a message back to Mordecai saying, No one in the kingdom can go to the king in his courtroom unless the king sends for him. Anyone that tries to do that will be killed. She goes, In fact, I'm the queen. I hadn't even seen my husband in 30 days. 30. Can you imagine that? Not seeing your husband, not seeing your wife for 30 days? I can't imagine that. Esther 4, verse 14, we see Mordecai's reply. We've already read it once this morning. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai sends word back again. He says, don't think that you're going to be safe just because you're in the palace. You're a Jew too. Whether you can help us or not, I believe this is the reason that God has allowed you to become queen for this exact moment in time. You know what Esther replied? Start praying. Start, isn't that a great answer? We need to pray. And they prayed for three days. She said she got all the women of the kingdom to start praying. On the third day, Esther dressed in her most lovely robes and she walked through the palace halls to the entrance to the throne room. And she stood in the doorway and the king, across the room on the throne, he smiles at her and he holds out his scepter. Humbly, she approaches him, and she touches the scepter. He says, Esther, what do you want? What's your heart's desire? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Just tell me, what's your request? Now, Esther, she played it pretty smart here. She didn't tell him. Not yet. She simply said, come and have dinner. I'd like to fix dinner for you and Haman. Brothers and sisters, 
That's what we call buttering them up. So she was about to butter them up with a big fancy meal. And that's a lesson, especially all the kids today. Before you ask mom and dad something, butter them up a little bit. So Haman, he was very pleased that he and he alone was invited to eat with the king and the queen. So he's feeling pretty good about himself. So as soon as that dinner was over, he went straight home to tell his wife and his friends how great the palace life is, how great the great Haman is. There he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai, standing tall, won't bow down, and he just despises Mordecai. So he goes home, and he has his servants build gallows, big, tall posts with a hanging noose on the end of it. At that same night, the king couldn't sleep. So you and I, we'd start counting sheep. No, not the king. Maybe he's counting gold, I don't know. No, he calls in some readers. And he has them open up the books of record and start reading to him until he can fall asleep. And I'm telling you, God's handiwork is this. God's finger was on this because the book they opened was about Mordecai saving the king's life. That's where the, the reader started reading. And he heard it. And it reminded him of someone that saved him before he fell asleep. So the next day, he asked Haman, Haman, why don't you su suggest some ways that I can honor a man that pleased the king? Well, old Haman stands up a little bit taller, his shoulders are back a little bit, and his chest gets a little bit bigger. Because he knows he's talking about him, surely talking about the great Haman. So he says, what should happen is you should, you should dress him up in fine clothes, whoever, the, whoever this person is. Dress him up in fine clothes. Put him on a king's horse. Then have a nobleman walk around praising the man and let him travel around the city so everyone can honor him. Boy, that sounded good to the king. He said, make it happen. Now, how shocked was Haman whenever... The king said, I want you to parade around the city and honor Mordecai the Jew. Haman's going, what? 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 You've got to be kidding me. i got to do what? He could hardly raise his head as he walked about the city, calling all to pay honor to Mordecai. So here he was, the chief prince, one day, and now praising his enemy the next day. One day, he, he builds a hanging noose for him. And the next day, he's praising his name. Well, after all that, he hurries to the second dinner that Esther had prepared. And at that dinner, the king looked at his beautiful wife, and, she, and he says, Esther, my queen, tell me your heart's desire. What do you want? And this time, she tells him. Solemnly, the queen replied, I want my life. What? I want my life, O king, and the lives of my people. That's what I'm asking for because we're about to be killed, all of us. So the king says, he demands, who's going to kill you? Who's going to kill you? Esther chapter 7, verse 6 and 7. And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up.
to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. So, back when I was a kid, Sandra and I, or Brad and I, we would do something silly and do something goofy, and my dad would get mad. He'd get upset, like dads do, but instead of flying off the handle, he would go out and check on the pecan trees. He did a lot of checking on those pecan trees until he could cool down a little bit. Well, that's what we see here with the king, not pecan trees. He goes into the palace guard. He hears that Haman is about to kill his wife, and he's blowing up. He gets up and he storms out. He goes out into the garden. And right at that exact moment, Haman's pleading for his life to Esther, and he trips and he falls, and he falls over on top of Esther. And now... King Ezra walks back in and he sees Haman on top of his wife. Dude, that wasn't a very good situation to be in. And his anger was kindled. Haman starts begging for his life, but the king was too angry to even listen. And he ordered Haman to be hanged on the gallows that was built for Mordecai. Esther 7 verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that had been pre prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified, or calmed down. On that day, Mordecai took Haman's place as chief of the princes. The law for killing the Jews, they couldn't be changed, so the, so the king made a new law that the Jews could actually fight back. Now most of the people were too afraid to fight him anyway, but the ones that did were quickly destroyed by the Jews. Instead of a sorrowful day, the day named for killing of the Jews, it turns out to be a victorious day for the Jews. The people celebrated a feast of thanksgiving to God for using Esther to save their lives. And the Jews today, they eat that same feast, the Feast of Purim. And when they do, they remember the beautiful queen who saved their people. So there you have it. That is the story of Esther in a nutshell. So a couple of things I'll share with you before we close here. First of all, this book, it features three feasts, okay? The Feast of Azra, chapters 1 and 2. Remember, that's a 100-day uh, feast, and it ends with the seven-day drinking party. Queen Vashti refuses uh, the king, and she loses the crown, and then Esther is chosen. The, number two, the second feast is the Feast of Esther, chapters 3 through 7. The king promotes Haman as his ambassador, and Mordecai refuses to bow down. Haman gets mad. He decides to kill Mordecai and to kill all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. So Mordecai encourages Esther to go before the king, and she does. Esther invites the king and Haman to her feast. That's where um, Haman plots to hang Mordecai, but the king honors him, and Haman has to participate. So at Esther's banquet, she finally reveals Haman's plot to kill her people, and then Haman gets hung. The third feast is the Feast of Purim, chapters 8 through 10. The king honors Esther and Mordecai. At Esther's request, the king says that the Jews can defend themselves. And when that day came, the Jews killed more than 75,000 people, including 10 sons of Haman. And that is when the Feast of Purim 
is instituted. The last thing that I want to look at is some great lessons that we can learn from this book. And I know there's a lot more than I've picked out, but here's a couple of things. This book teaches us how God is watching out for us. He's working in the background. We just have to have faith that he's doing so. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Moms of the audience this morning, God uses you. Uses you in the background all the time. Uses you to teach younger ladies, to teach young children, whether you're, they're your own children directly or others indirectly. Men, the same applies to us. God uses us to be examples to our young boys. We teach them to be hard workers, leaders in the home, providers for their families, leaders at church, song leaders, and to preach the sermons. Number two, Queen Vashti. She gives a great example to all the women that they don't have to compromise with the world and parade themselves around so they can appease the lustful eye of worldly men. And of course, us men, we can learn the same lesson. Number three, this book teaches us the importance of always being ready to serve God. Sometimes we have to make a hard choice like Esther did, but we must be willing to do it when we know it will bring honor and glory to God. We never know the exact time or place. We don't know when that door of opportunity will come. But when it does come, we need to be ready. We know that we serve God by serving others. And that brings up to mind what happened back in February of this year. The big ice storm. I love how this congregation pulled together to help others. Some took families in that were without power. Some took food and groceries to others. I love how Dad shared firewood with many of you that needed heat. The point is this. Whether it's an encouraging word, studying the Bible with a neighbor, or helping others in need, we should always be ready to do that. That's what Paul tells us in Titus 3, verse 1, to be ready to every good work. The fourth thing we can pick up is courage. Courage is often required. Just like he told Joshua, be strong and courageous. In our story, we see that Mordecai had the courage to tell the king about the assassination attempt. And we also see that Esther had courage to approach the king to help save her people. In life, things don't always go our way. We have ups, we have downs. Sometimes the downs we think are too many to count. We've got struggles. We've got real struggles. We've got money problems, job problems, relationship problems. Face those problems with courage. Maintain courage. When we face health struggles, be strong and courageous. Stand on your faith. Let your church family lift you up and encourage you. And then number five, Number five is prayer is key to victory. They prayed for three days for Esther before she went to the king. Having a prayer life is important. We pray for any decision that you're going to be facing. Pray for your family. Be thankful in all things.
Prayer is deliberate and intentional communication that nurtures our relationship with the Father. It's our way of connecting with God daily. So this morning I tell you, allow God to work in your life. Do you serve him? Do you serve others in the kingdom? This morning the lesson is yours and I appreciate your kind attention. I hope my comments have been encouraging to you and I hope you're able to get something from them. Remember Jesus. Remember how he went to the cross on our behalf. Not for anything he did to him. Not for any sin that he did. But he went because of us. To save us. And they hung him on that cross. He spilt his blood on that cross. And it's that blood that washes our sins away. And we come in contact with the blood when we're baptized. This morning, if you'd like to become a child of God, being baptized, maybe you'd like the prayers of the church. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and sing. Bring Christ to the world in life, so long.